Well, I recognize a lot of faces here who know me well enough to know that I'm kind of a nerd, a science fiction nerd, and a, I used to be a comic book geek. Now I'm more of a comic book movie geek. And uh, this weekend is San Diego Comic-Con, so sorry, you knew it had to come. Um, I pay attention to these things. These are important. Um, you know, San Diego, San Diego Comic-Con used to be a, an event for people like me, people who cared about comic books and comic book superheroes. But because there's so much money in comic books and comic book movies today, increasingly it is a marketing opportunity for motion picture studios and gaming companies to market their wares. And so all weekend long, there have been this this steady stream of marketing materials that have come out of San Diego Comic-Con. For example, uh, this week, uh, this weekend, uh, the trailer for a new movie came out. This fall, a movie will come out called Justice League. If you're not a comic book person, that's okay. But the trailer came out, and of course I've watched it, and it looks okay. Um, I was hoping for something awesome, and it's, so far it looks okay, but we'll see. I can tell you, I grew up as a fan of the DC Extended Universe, which is kind of Superman and Batman. Uh, my, my best friend Daniel, he was a fan of the Marvel comic world, which had Spider-Man and people like that. And frankly, Spider-Man and those people are really beating my team in the marketplace. DC hasn't had a lot of successes. They did have one success this year. They had the, the successful movie Wonder Woman. There's a picture of Wonder Woman and Steve, what's his name? So, um, uh, <laughs> It's a it's a good movie. I, I enjoyed that movie. We don't go to a lot of movies actually in the theater. We tend to wait for them to come home. And uh, so we saw this one. And I will tell you, of all the movies involving pagan gods and goddesses, this one has the most Christian message I can imagine. So it is it is actually a worthy movie in that respect. But it's also kind of, it stands out. It's got a little more heart, a little more humanity than a lot of the superhero movies. Um, it's... It, it saved its explosions mostly for the third act. There were a few throughout the, the movie, but, but most of the explosions, you know, in most of these movies are just all through it. If you watch, if you watch a lot of movies today, there's just like CGI monsters and there's special effect explosions all through the whole movie. And, uh, this is what you kind of go into a movie expecting to see a lot of that. And the reason it's pretty obvious is because computers are cheap. If you watch the end of the movie, you'll see you'll see something that looks like this next screen. You'll see lots of names of people like me, nerds, okay, people who work with a computer. And there's screen after screen of that. I don't think the movie Casablanca had that many people total, cast and crew, making the entire movie. And that's just a portion of the people who worked on the explosions for the movie Avengers. So, so nowadays, movies, I think, as a comic book geek, I will tell you, I think that we probably have too many explosions in them. I think that a lot of movies today don't have as much heart or as much humanity as they need to have. And that is kind of where we pick up our story in Revelation. You know, last week we looked at chapter 4 of the book of Revelation and there were these fantastic creatures. There was this dazzling imagery. There was a, an a emerald and a throne and a rainbow and, and all kinds of special effects. And, and if you were going to make a movie about it, you'd have to use CGI because there's nothing you could photograph that looks like that. But there's kind of a, why do I care? You know, by this point in the book of Revelation, we're kind of going, why do I care? I mean, someday, sure, you know, when I get to heaven, you know, I'll see these things and they're kind of 
hard to picture on the page. So, yeah, that's nice. It's interesting. But really, I'm not going to see it this side of eternity. So really, why do I care? And chapter 5 in the book of Revelation is where we see that this movie is not just a summer blockbuster with the explosions and the special effects. Chapter 5 is where we see that this movie has heart and humanity. It's even got a surprise ending. Because in this chapter, we're going to see that this movie, which suddenly we discover has heart and humanity, doesn't just have humanity in general. In this chapter, we discover that the book of Revelation has a featured role for us. We are in this chapter. So what I'd like to do is uh, begin looking at chapter 5 of the book of Revelation while you're finding it in your scriptures. Um, uh, if you weren't here last week, there's a couple of kind of casts that we need to be aware of. So chapter 4 told us about the one who is seated on the throne. That is God. And John calls uh, God the one who is seated on the throne throughout the book. And he also talked about 24 elders with crowns who sit on thrones arranged in a circle around the throne of God. And then also these four living beings. John can't figure out what to call them, so he finally just says they were alive. So so if that's not a movie title, I don't know what is. John says there's these four weird creatures that are giving praise to God, the living beings. And so we're going to see all of those again in today's reading. So, um, so we pick things up in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. It says, I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. So God has got a scroll in his hand, and there's writing on both sides. It's filled up. There's too much to fit on one side. So it's written on both sides, but it's sealed. In the ancient world, you sealed a document for two reasons. One was for privacy. You'd roll it up, and then you'd seal it. No one could open it without breaking the seal. But it was also for authenticity. You know, the king had a signet ring or something like that. They'd put the wax on it. They'd stamp their their knuckle in the wax, and then there'd be an impression, and only the king could make that seal. So it was a way of saying this is the authentic, authentic message, and it's also private. At this point, we don't know what the message is. And he says, and I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice. You know, every place else in Scripture we see angels, what do we see? We see people who are terrified. And the angel, almost always, the first thing the angel says is, don't be afraid. <laughs> and this one is a strong angel. <laughs> so so more than, more than your usual run-of-the-mill angel who just terrifies you, this one is strong. And what does he do? He shouts with a loud voice. Why does he shout? Well, because he wants to be heard all through heaven and earth and under the earth. This message goes out to the far ranges of creation. So, of course, he has to shout. And he asks this question, who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? But no one was found worthy. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll to read it. And to me, this is where we first start to see heart. You know, we love stories where there is someone who is worthy. You know, if you think of our our best stories, if you think of the legend of King Arthur, what 
sets King Arthur apart? How does he find out that he's destined for the throne? There's only one person who can pull the sword from the stone. And so he does. And that's how he knows his future. He is the one who is worthy to take the sword from the stone. If your taste runs more to comic book movies, there's an amusing scene in the second Avengers movie where we find the same is true of Thor's hammer. All the other superheroes who are great heroes, they have all kinds of powers and they're wonderful people, but they can't pick up his hammer because they're not worthy. We understand that there is this this thing that says it shouldn't be enough to simply be strong. You should need to be worthy as well. We 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 resonate with the idea that might doesn't make right, that there has to be worthiness as well. And so we see some heart here, but what we especially see is humanity. Because think about it, this shout went out to heaven and earth and under the earth. And we understand, you know, the world's a messed up place, probably under the earth, wherever that is, that's probably messed up too. But heaven... Why isn't anyone in heaven worthy? There's 24 elders with crowns and robes. They spend all day singing praise to God. Why aren't they worthy? There's these living beings that John can't even really describe. Why aren't they worthy? What's, we're about to hear about a million angels. None of them are worthy to take the scroll. They aren't because none of them are human. See, God gave dominion of the world to mankind. He said, I have made this world good, now take dominion of it and be my uh, uh, overseers, run creation on my behalf. And that means that humans have to be a part, have to actually have the role of fixing what's gone wrong with creation. And that's why John weeps. He says, I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. This is what we despair of. We realize we're not capable of fixing the world. We might be able to to bring a little bit of order to some spot, but not always, not even ourselves, much less the greater world around us. We may be able to make a little bit of a difference in our life, but we can't fix everything that's gone wrong with the world. We can't undo the damage that's been done. Sometimes it's all we can do to stay even. So no one in all the earth is worthy to open the seal. But then, as John is weeping, an elder says, Don't weep. Look. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah, this is a title for Jesus. It's, um, it refers to the fact his lineage comes from the tribe of Judah, and he is a lion, a, a symbol of royalty. He is the lion of Judah, and then it says he's the heir to David's throne. And he has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. So what makes him worthy? What makes him worthy? Well, John has kind of, uh, you know, kind of colored his story in a way to kind of give us a surprise in a moment because he's talked about a strong angel. He's talked about a lion. He 
He's talked about someone who can conquer. The word, the word won the victory is, is he, he conquered. He overcame. He Nike'd. You know, if you think of the TV commercials, right? He competed and won. He Nike'd the victory. So, John is setting us up. He's expecting us. We're going to hear about somebody who's strong and mighty, who won the victory through sheer strength. But John looks, and what does he see? He sees a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. And now it's standing between the throne. So it was slaughtered, but it's alive again. And now it's standing between the throne and the four living beings among the 24 elders. So this is Jesus. He is the lamb who was slaughtered. But he lives again. And he has seven horns and seven eyes. I don't think John is talking about Jesus. But what he's saying is Jesus has horns. Jesus is strong. If you think of an agricultural community, they didn't have draft horses. So for them, the way they they did things that required a lot of muscle was they used oxen. Oxen have horns. So to them, a horn is a symbol of strength. And he's got eyes, not just eyes to see with, but eyes penetrating eyesight. He perceives things. He has insight. He has eyes and horns, and not just one or two or three He's got seven. He's got the perfect number. He's got the totality, all the horns, all the eyes, all the vision, all the power you could need. He's perfect in power and in wisdom. And his horns and eyes represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. And he stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp. I've got a friend from seminary who's a harpist, and she says this is literal and should be taken literally, and in heaven everyone has a harp. I'm hoping not. (laughs) I've, I've told her that. I'm hoping this represents music in general. And they held gold bowls filled with incense which are the prayers of the of God's people. You know, I love that image. You know, think about that. There's a there's a question in the program to help you kind of tease out what does that mean? What does it mean that our prayers ascend to God not as words but as incense? Just stop and think of what the ramifications of that are. And they fell down and they sang a new song with these words. You're worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God. Again, culturally, this was not unusual. When you conquered a a city or a country, you'd take captives, and then you'd sell them back. Or maybe if, if the price wasn't good, you'd sell them into slavery somewhere else. But you could monetize your victory by capturing people and then ransoming them. This was just the way things worked. And the image here is that Jesus has paid for a people with his blood. The ransom price was his blood. And it says, what did you do? You, Your blood has ransomed a people for God, not just one or two or a few hundred, but from every tribe and language and people and nation, from all around the globe, from every people, all kinds of people from all kinds of places. Jesus has won this people for God. And then he says, why? And we'll come back to that, but I want to wrap up the part about the singing here. He says, I looked again, 
And some new voices join the, the, the chorus. Thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus. Worthy is the Lamb who is slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. You know, sometimes people go to another church and they say, I like that church, you know, my daughter goes there or something like that. But they say, the music was too loud for me. I've got bad news for you. In heaven, it's going to be louder still. So, um, so just be advised. You might as well get used to it. But they sing this song again, worthy is the lamb. And then, uh, it, if we had just heard chapter four, which they would have heard originally, for us it's kind of yes, last week's, but this is the same language. This is the same words that are used to give praise to the one in the throne. So these heavenly beings are praising Jesus in the same terms that a chapter ago they praised God, the one in the throne, in. And then, just to underscore the point, he hears every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and they all sing, blessing and glory and honor and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever. So the one on the throne and the Lamb. You know, people who are unfamiliar with Christianity wonder about the, well, people who are familiar with Christianity wonder about the Trinity. What does it mean that Jesus is a distinct person and yet also God? What does that mean? Well, I don't know, I don't claim to have any understanding of all that it means, but it means this. It means that Jesus receives glory as God, but Jesus also does God's work as a human. See, it says he receives power and glory because he has won for God a people and tribe. We can't look at God in the abstract and say God is God is this or God is that. We should look at God in terms of what he does. We saw that last week. The elders praised God for what God does. And here we see Jesus who is God, but is also somehow distinct from God, is the reason that God is praised here and the reason that he deserves praise. So the four living beings fall down, they say amen, and the elders fall down, and they worship the Lamb. What I'd like to do is go back and talk just a little bit about why he did it, because it tells us why we're in this picture. It tells us why does this human story about someone who is worthy, who conquers and overcomes by his own sacrifice, why? Why does he do that? We're in the picture because he has won for God this people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But why? Is it so that when you die, you you get to go to heaven? That's not what it says, is it? It says the reason he did this was you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign in the earth. They will reign in the earth. See, God's intention revealed back at the very beginning of Genesis is that humankind would have dominion over the earth, but we're not worthy to have dominion over the earth. So what should God do? Should God simply take it back and say, all right, well, then I'll do it. Should God say, well, I give up and destroy the world in a ball of fire, start over again some new way? No, what God does is he wins the victory. In Jesus, he goes inside 
Instead of saving the world from the outside, he goes into the world and saves the world from the inside. Humanity becomes worthy again in Christ. And the promise here is that we will reign forever. We will reign on the earth. So that's what it means when it talks about a kingdom. It says, we will be this kingdom. We will reign. We will have dominion over the earth. So we get that part. And in fact, it's kind of attractive. You know, if you think of the, the story from, you know, the life of Jesus in, in one of the, the gospel accounts, uh, we learn about Jesus' followers, James and John. They have this sense that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to become a king, and they say, that sounds pretty attractive. I'd like to be someone high up in your administration. Let me have the seat on the right or the left in your new administration. And Jesus says they can't not right away that it's for those to whom it's been prepared. But it sounds good to be king, doesn't it? But how about priest? Does that sound as good? What what, what do priests do? Priests... I'm sorry, we had an answer, what? They control the king. Uh, well, not this king. Not this king, for sure. Um, so, so what do they do? Priests offer sacrifice in worship to God. And I think that that's a problem for a lot of us. Because we worship God, but not exclusively. There's other things that we worship. We're not prepared to worship only God. But only Jesus is suitable for our worship. We have other things. We have comic book movies. We've got work. We've got family. We've got, on a day like today, we've got leisure. We've got all kinds of things that take a place in our heart that really only Jesus can fill. We have the church. There are people who worship the church. I've had people tell me, well, it just doesn't seem like worship unless. And then they fill in the blank. And that is never Jesus. Because that's the way the sentence should be finished. It doesn't seem like worship unless Jesus. But instead they say a building or a musical style or some other earthly created thing. We worship all kinds of things. But we're called to sacrifice. We're called to give up the things, sometimes good things, to give them back to God so that we can worship the one thing we were designed to worship. This book lays out a picture of heavenly worship. It says, someday you will do this. It says, every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth and in the sea, Someday every creature will worship the Lamb and the one in the throne. And it tells us how. It tells us to live as priests, royal priests, but priests, people who sacrifice so that they can worship God. If you're going to do it someday, why not start now? Why not look at your life? Why not look at the places where you have put something else and said that this thing may be a bad thing, but maybe even a good thing. And you've said, this is the supreme thing in my life. This is what my life rotates around. This is what everything has to uh, come and go in accordance with. 
Say, if that's not Jesus, if that's not God and the Lamb, then sacrifice it. Offer it to God. Say, God, this is a good thing. This is a great job. This is a great family. But I've put them in your place. And now I'm offering them back to you as an act of worship because you have made me one of a kingdom of priests. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, strange book that is filled with such dazzling images that sometimes we can forget that we have a role in it, that we are the people that Jesus ransomed with his blood, not so that we could go to heaven and sit in a cloud with a harp someday, but so that right now we could be a kingdom of priests, sacrificing in worship. And so, Lord, we pray you would help us to identify the things that we worship other than you. Help us to put them to one side or to offer them in worship to you. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.